The same Congress, however, found reasons enough for changing its mind before the month of May was out. The British forces in Canada had already begun to move towards the threatened frontier. They had occupied and strengthened St. John's, and the Americans were beginning to fear least the command of Lake Champlain might fall into British hands. On the 27th of May, the Congress closed the phase of individual raids and inaugurated the phase of regular invasion by commissioning General Schuller to pursue any measures in Canada that may have a tendency to promote the peace and security of these colonies. Philip Schuller was a distinguished member of the family whose head had formulated the glorious enterprise of conquering New France in 1689. Footnote. See in this series The Fighting Governor. So it was quite in line with the family tradition for him to be under orders to take possession of St. John's, Montreal, and any other parts of the country, provided always, adds the cautious Congress that General Schuller finds it practicable, and it will not be disagreeable to the Canadians. A few days later, Arnold was trying to get a colonelcy from the Convention of New York, whose members just then happened to be thinking of giving commissions to his rivals, the leaders of the Green Mountain Boys. While to make the complication quite complete, these boys themselves had every intention of electing officers on their own account. In the meantime, Connecticut, determined not to be forestalled by either friend or foe, ordered a thousand men to Ticonderoga, and commissioned a general called Wooster to command them. Thus early were sown the seeds of the dissensions between Congress troops and colony troops, which nearly drove Washington mad. Schuller reached Ticonderoga in mid-July, and assumed his position as Congressional Commander-in-Chief. Unfortunately for the good of the service, he had only a few hundred men with him, so Wooster, who had a thousand, thought himself the bigger general of the two. The Connecticut men followed Wooster's lead by jeering at Schuller's men from New York, while the Vermonters added to the confusion by electing Seth Warner instead of Ethan Allen. In mid-August, a second congressional general arrived, making three generals and a half a dozen colonels for less than 1,500 troops. This third general was Richard Montgomery, an ardent rebel of 38, who had been a captain in the British Army. He had sold his commission, bought an estate on the Hudson, and married a daughter of the Livingstons. The Livingstons headed the Anglo-American revolutionists in the colony of New York, as the Schulers headed the Nickenbacker Dutch, and was soon to take the field at the head of the American patriots in Canada. Montgomery was brother to the Captain Montgomery of the 43rd, who was the only British officer to disgrace himself during Wolfe's Quebec campaign, which he did by murdering his French-Canadian prisoners at Chateau Richer, because they had fought disguised as Indians. Footnote. See The Passing of New France, page 118. Richard Montgomery was a much better man than his savage brother, though, as the sequel proves, he was by no means the perfect hero his American admirers would have the world believe. His great value at Ticonderoga was his professional knowledge and his adore in the cause he espoused. His presence changed the spirit of the camp. It sadly needed change. Such a set of pusillanimous wretches never were collected, is his own description in a despairing letter to his wife. 
The army, in fact, was all parts and no whole, and all the parts were the mere untrained militia. Moreover, the spirit of the town meeting ruled the camp. Even a battery could not be moved without consulting a council of war. Schuler, though far more phlegmatic than Montgomery, agreed with him heartily on this and many other exasperating points. If Job had been a general in my situation, his memory had not been so famous for patience. Worn out by his worries, Schuler fell ill and was sent to command the base at Albany. Montgomery then succeeded to the command of the forces destined for the front. The plan for invasion, approved by Washington, was, first, to sweep the line of the Richelieu by taking St. John's, Chamberlain, then to take Montreal, next to secure the line of the St. Lawrence, and, finally, to besiege Quebec. Montgomery's forces were to carry out all the preliminary parts alone, but Arnold was to join him at Quebec after advancing across country from the Kennebec to the Chaudière with a flying column of Virginians and New Englanders. Carleton opened the melancholy little session of the new legislative council at Quebec on the very day Montgomery arrived at Ticonderoga, the 17th of August. When he closed it to take up the defense of Canada, the prospect was already black enough though it grew blacker still as time went on. Immediately on hearing the news of Ticonderoga, Crown Point, and St. John's at the end of May, he had sent every available man from Quebec to Montreal, whence Colonel Templer had already sent off a hundred and forty men to St. John's, while calling for volunteers to follow. The seguinarial class came forward at once, but all attempts to turn out the militia and mass proved utterly futile. Fourteen years of kindly British rule had loosened up the old French bonds of government, and the habitants were no longer united as part of one people with the seniors and the clergy. The rebels had been busy spreading insidious perversions of the belated Quebec Act, poisoning the minds of the habitants against the British government, and filling their imaginations with all sorts of terrifying doubts. The habitants were ignorant, credulous, and superstitious to the last degree. The most absurd stories obtained ready credence and ran like wildfire through the province. Seven thousand Russians were said to be coming up the St. Lawrence, whether as friends or foes mattered nothing compared with the awful fact that they were all outlandish bogies. Carleton was said to have a plan for burning alive every habitant he could lay his hands on. Montgomery's thousand were said to be five thousand with many more to follow. And later on, when Arnold's men came up the Kennebec, it was satisfactorily explained to most of the habitants that it was no good resisting dead-shot riflemen who were bulletproof themselves. Carleton issued proclamations. The seigneurs waved their swords. The clergy thundered from their pulpits, but all in vain. Two months after the American exploits on Lake Champlain, Carleton gave a guinea to the sentry mounted in his honor by the local militia colonel, M. D. Tonnecleur, because this man was the first genuine habitant he had yet seen armed in the whole district of Three Rivers. What must Carleton have felt when the home government authorized him to raise six thousand of His Majesty's loyal French-Canadian subjects for immediate service and informed him that the arms and equipment for the first three thousand were already on the way to Canada. 
Seven years earlier, it might have seemed possible to raise French-Canadian counterparts of those Highland regiments which Wolfe had recommended and Pitt had so cordially approved. Carleton himself had recommended this excellent scheme at the proper time, but though the home government even then agreed with him, they thought such a measure would raise more parliamentary and public clamor than they could safely face. The chance once lost was lost forever. Carleton had done what he could to keep the enemy at arm's length from Montreal by putting every available man into Chambry and St. John's. He knew nothing of Arnold's force till it actually reached Quebec in November. Quebec was thought secure for the time being, and so was left with a handful of men under Cremahay. Montreal had a few regulars and a hundred royal emigrants, mostly old Highlanders who had settled along the New York frontier after the conquest. For the rest, it had many American and a few British sympathizers ready to fly at each other's throat and a good many neutrals ready to curry favor with the winners. Sorrel was a mere post without any effective garrison. Chambry was held by only eighty men under Major Stopford, but its strong stone fort was well armed and quite proof against anything except siege artillery, while its little garrison consisted of good regulars who were well provisioned for a siege. The mass of Carleton's little force was at St. John's under Major Preston, who had five hundred men of the 7th and 26th Royal Fusiliers and Cameronians, eighty gunners, and one hundred and twenty volunteers, mostly French-Canadian gentlemen. Preston was an excellent officer, and his seven hundred men were able to give a very good account of themselves as soldiers. But the fort was not nearly so strong as the one in Chamberlain. It had no natural advantages of position, and was short of both stores and provisions. 